everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of the Master Instructor Roundtable. I'm Marty Miller here with my co-host, dear friend, Miss Wendy Batts. Wendy, how are you doing today? I'm good, Marty. How are you? Excellent. Looking forward to today's topic, a little ground-based training, kind of going through some of the little maybe hidden secrets in there and why we should be implementing this as much as possible. Yeah, we got some great feedback from, I think, another, gosh, podcast or webinar we did many months ago that kind of hit a little bit on these topics of the differences between open chain and closed chain exercises. And so we really do appreciate the feedback in the comments. And so because of that, today we're going to talk a little bit about ground-based training, which is really going into more detail about the two and uh, hopefully giving you guys some ideas of how to switch up your, your normal routines and provide some kind of a different thought process, I think, when programming for your clients. Yeah, and it's become very trendy and popular between boot camps, high intensity. So it's great that people are doing even animal flow, but let's, you know, not even just show it. We need to talk about what could be going on when you're doing these type of exercises. So at least you can implement it with a strategy. Absolutely. You always have to have a strategy, Marty. <laughs> Right. And that's actually what we're going to talk about. So we are going to talk about open chain exercises versus closed chain. We're going to talk about the advantages of closed chain exercises and then hopefully come up with some exercise ideas and provide benefits for you guys. Um, just again, a little deeper, deeper take into some of the reasons and rationales of maybe why you're already doing what you're doing or provide a little, little tweak if you're not already doing some of these. Perfect. Love the, uh, topics here. So when we go over open chain exercises, first, we have to understand what we're talking about. So the definition here is the characteristic of open chain movement is that the distal segment, hands and feet are not fixed, and they are free to move in space. So there you go, like with the bicep curl. So you know, there's going to be a lot of different versions of this. So as we bring up the other slide, we'll go through some more of the definition here. And additionally, open chain exercises have independent joint movement of only the segment distal to the moving joint itself. And then while not required, a majority of open chain activities are non-weight bearing. Those are kind of the three kind of general rules of thumb when you're looking at an open chain exercise versus a closed chain exercise. Yeah. And it also, you know, lets you kind of vary up some of the difference, uh, differences in equipment that you're using and thinking about mm -hmm. Where are your feet in space? Where are your hands in space? Where is, you know, if you're using dumbbells and free weights, you know, how is that going to differ from maybe a cable or, or an actual machine? And uh, because they all serve a different purpose. You think about the core demand, think about, you know, the differences that you have to think about of whether you're standing or sitting. I mean, it's just a different way of looking at some of the exercises and, and ways to vary it up. Well said, buddy. So Thanks, now if we move forward here, some examples of open chain exercises include a lat pull down, bicep curl, bench press, leg curl, and leg extension exercises. And then unlike a closed chain exercise, which activate multiple muscles, open chain exercises tend to focus on isolating the prime mover. So, you know, things that maybe we grew up in back in the day when we first got into exercising and weightlifting. But you can see the difference here between an open chain exercise and a closed chain exercise. And they all have value without a doubt. But the key thing is to understand when you put so many of these exercises that there is a difference between the two. There is a difference. <laughs> I can't add anything else to that. But then, you know, if we talk about open chain, we definitely need to talk a little bit about closed chain exercises just to make sure we're, we're very clear on the definitions. So when we're talking about the closed chain exercises here, we're talking about primary characteristics of closed chain movements. That is the distal segments, such as the person's hands or feet, 
that are fixed and remain in contact with the stationary surface. So such as the ground or, you know, if you're on a specific platform, they stay there. And then when we look at the next bullet point, we're these are often require the movement of multiple joints in a predictable manner with a contraction of multiple muscle groups. So when we start talking a lot about total body exercises, and especially if you're, you know, have foundation of corrective exercise, when we talk about doing our integration type exercises, this is where these often come into play. And even though it's not required, a majority of closed chain activities are weight bearing. So some examples, of course, are the push-up, squats, pull-ups, and or lunges. Total body That's pretty good squat right there, Marty. That was I, a good I picture. I do my best to find the right picture. That was actually a really good one. <laughs> if we don't get good pictures, it always frustrates us, but we do what we can. So as we move forward here, during a squat or lunge, the distal segment are fixed on a stable surface and movement occurs at the hips, knees, and ankles. Multiple muscles are activated. Now, the same can be said for upper extremities during push-ups or pull-ups. The hands are fixed either on the floor or a static bar. I think this is the one that maybe throws people off a little bit more is the pull-up because, you know, they're, they see the body moving, but the hand placement is on a stationary bar where on a pull down, the bar is the part that's moving. So same thing with a push-up, you know, pretty easy to see there compared to a chest press push-up you're on a, a the hands around the ground they're not going to be able to move the body has to move above it but on a dumbbell chest press if i'm on a bench my arms are moving in space and i'm fixed uh, lying on on the bench so during these movements the body will transfer force back into that fixed stable surface with multiple joints in the kinetic chain dealing with the resistance yeah and and again marty i think too you know are you lifting your body or are you lifting the weight? That's an easy way to kind of, you know, decipher, okay, which is which, because to your point, you know, if your hands are moving, then, you know, that's going to be the joints that are moving that load versus, you know, like you said, if, if your hands are fixed on the floor, it doesn't mean you can't move them off of the ground. Right. However, it will help you kind of mentally think, well, what's the difference? And then we're still using the same prime movers. It's just, you know, in a different aspect, you're fighting gravity or you're fighting weight. That's another way of looking at it too. And if you're doing something prone versus supine. Yeah. And even if you take a push up with rotation, right, with both hands on the ground, you're doing a bilateral closed chain exercise. And as soon as you leave the ground, the right, if I go into uh, with all the force on my left, my right arm's in space. So that side technically is an open chain, but there's no resistance. But all I'm doing now is having a higher neuromuscular demand on the left side, which is still a closed chain chest press on that side or into a shoulder stabilization exercise. So you can have these transfer, like you said, it doesn't always have to be the same thing, both hands on the ground. There are ways to make it more advanced. Yeah. And I mean, you know, think about like a lunged balance. So both feet are on the ground and then when you come up to balance and hold it, it becomes the other. So, so it is the way that you're transferring movements. There can be a combination of both, just like you said, with the push up with rotation, um, but the primary movement is either on a stable surface or, or in space. And I think this also becomes important when you're thinking about corrective exercise and what you're trying to get out of it versus, you know, something like if someone's coming out of an ACL, you know, reconstruction and, and you've got them on a fixed machine doing something versus you have them like with a bolster, let's say under the knees, and then you're having them contract their quads to try to get VMO activation. 
again, still working the quads, still working them in different ways. Your foot position can kind of alter maybe the primary movement of one of the, the particular quad muscle. But what is it that you're trying to achieve? What is important for that client? And then how can you vary it up through that progression? Because I think that's also something to consider when you're looking at the differences between open and closed chain exercise. Yeah. And I think, you know, the goal would be to get people to progress to some of these closed chain exercises we're going to see because, you know, they're more metabolically demanding because you have more muscles activating, getting up and off the ground, you know, is actually great. It's, it's part of hip mobility, all these other things that are very, very important, but not everyone's gonna be able to start with those. But the goal would be to definitely implement some of these closed chain exercises, you know, probably as early in the program as you can. Don't, don't forget about them and understand the value that they bring. Yeah. And today on the Master Instructor Roundtable, Marty Miller and myself, Wendy Batts, are talking about ground-based training and also the kind of the differences when we're thinking about the differences between open chain versus closed chain exercises and how there is a progression, there is a systematic process, of course, utilizing the OPT model, but then also trying to figure out what is the prime mover, what are you trying to achieve, and what are some of the best, best exercises to get you there safely, effectively, and efficiently. Yeah. So as we go into just a few, you know, we're going to spend some time on the slide here because each exercise has a lot going on that I think kind of goes unnoticed. So if we start here with the top left, the bear crawl, one, it's great metabolically Two, it's fun to do. And you can do it in multiple planes. You can do it sagittal plane. You can do it sagittal plane retro. You can do frontal plane. You can do transverse plane where you're going around the clock. You can play games where they have to try to tag something. But when you look at what's going on, they're going to have anywhere between four and then two of their extremities on the ground at all time. So there's a transference of load from side to side. Also, if you do it properly, you're using one arm and one leg at the same time on the opposite side of the body, which is the way the body needs to work. So you're teaching that normal movement pattern, but you're getting a ton of co-contraction through the wrist, through the elbow, into the shoulder, hopefully into the scapular muscles. If you're pushing into the ground, then you get all that core activation. And even here, you can see if he does it correctly, he's going to go into triple flexion and then back into triple extension. So there's a lot going on here. So Wendy, I'm sure you do a lot of bear crawls or have done it. So if you can talk about maybe some of the features that you like, kind of some of the hidden gems part of it that we've talked about before or how you progress or regress. Yeah, I mean, I love bear crawls because, you know, especially for a dynamic warm up, when I get to that part of the program, or if I'm going back into an undulated type of programming and, you know, and I know that there's an important component of adding some kind of dynamic uh, warm up, or even if I just want to have fun and there are some of my youth athletes, you know, sometimes we'll do, um, you know, bear crawl, uh, you know, races, if you will. But, you know, with some of my athletes too, when they get the bear crawl down and I want to challenge them even more and they're working more into strength, I mean, I may, I may ban them. So I may go ahead and put like a band on the side of them and then have them try to go into sagittal. So they're moving forward and backward while I'm trying to push them to the side a little bit, or maybe they're going against resistance and going to the, the opposing side of where I'm standing, or maybe even at a diagonal. So you can get very creative with bear crawls. And again, cardiovascularly, if you speed it up and you're using everything and you're in a prone position, I mean, anytime your hands get involved, people's heart rates go up. And, you know, I'm a huge, huge advocate for, you know, plank walks and bear crawls and things in the speed ladder with your hands. And it's because it's a different variation to increase heart rate, but you're getting so many multiple components of muscles firing at the same time 
but then obviously really focusing on maintaining, you know, core activation, proper alignment and movement patterns throughout because people's heads want to jump, you know, jump forward or especially if they're banded, they want to hike their hips. So doing this is correctly and then starting slow and then adding speed later. It is an unbelievable progressive exercise, but, you know, people want to go fast and they want to load it from the beginning. And that's where I think a lot of problems occur and bad patterning happens. So start slow, be very specific in movement and quality, and then you can start adding some of these different um, progressive components to it. Yeah, and you can even do a bear crawl to an isometric where you're holding now in different positions, which is great. And, you know, you can even do like the back in the day of the game, red light, green light, right? Like they go quick and then they have to stop and then they have to hold it. Then they go quick again, right? So you're teaching them to accelerate, decelerate, isometric. So just have fun with it. Nothing yeah, and it's more. awesome to do in boot camps, I think, too. You know, mm -hmm. these are utilized heavily in boot camps because there is no equipment involved. It is something that you can vary it up. Most clients can do a bear crawl as long as there's no issue with someone being in a prone position and you've got them successfully doing a plank. I think, you know, having, you know, planks down is important before doing something like this. Also, you know, being able to do different push-ups, alternating opposite arm and leg to get movement quality um, in a contralateral position. I mean, so just think there are certain components they really need to own before you have them do this, but it is actually one that I use very often. Yeah. And then Wendy, do you want to maybe start off with the side plank? I know you're a fan of side planks. Yes. I mean, you know, side planks are easy for people to do if they do it correctly. And what I mean by that is just like every other ordinary plank, let me hold it for a minute and see what happens. And oftentimes when we do an overhead squat, we notice that poor, um, that a client has poor core stability. We know that there's a lot of weaknesses and breakdowns because their hips do not stay in proper alignment. There may be some faulty movement patterns with an excessive forward lean. And so because of that, we think, oh, okay, you know what, let's make it hard. Let's hold it for a long duration of time. It's actually quite different. When somebody does a, pl you know, a plank or a side plank in the very beginning, we really want to emphasize doing three to four second holds, coming down, relaxing, and then contracting and relaxing and contracting because that's how our core in the very beginning really needs to be challenged is turning off, turning on, turning off, turning on. Well, the same thing with the side plank. Once you get someone pretty dialed in to you know, three to four seconds, proper alignment, really good shoulder stability, really good glute squeeze, so a wink, if you will, and they can hold that, then you can start adding time. And once somebody's progressed to a longer period of time, then you can start adding something like the, um, the cable with that. And so trying to maintain proper positioning and then doing an external row, like you can see here, um, it is very, very challenging for someone to do. And it's one of those that is a good progression that it doesn't always have to be about how long you can hold it because they could do a row and slowly come out at a four second pace. They could drop their hips down, go back up into a side plank, go back into that row. So you're, you're again, contracting, relaxing and utilizing the entire kinetic chain, maintaining proper alignment, but you're being creative in some of the different ways that you're doing it, but still emphasizing the muscles that you're trying to emphasize by doing this particular um, side plank with a row. Yeah, the key thing is creativity within the spectrum of what you can control. So there's nothing wrong with having the plus ones or the add-ons, but if you can't do the side plank properly, then that's where you stay. But, you know, there's ways to do it. Like you said, Wendy, he can come down with his hips every time he rows, or he can stay up with his hips for five to 10 seconds, do a row, or he can even, I've seen people do where they hold the row in the isometric and have the hips come up and down. So a lot of different things you can do. 
just be creative, but also make sure that the five kinetic chain checkpoints are in order and what you're doing makes sense. Yes. And Marty, I'm going to let you take this one with your animal flowness. Actually, <laughs> I'm more of the jujitsu martial arts on this one. That's a V sit. That's how we get out of a bad situation, but you could look, I've seen it for animal flow, but it all works the same. But what I love about this one is one, it's very metabolically challenging is if you start to get in repetitions and maybe even sometimes I will let people go faster, especially if they're more of that, at that power phase. But if you notice both of their hands are on the ground in front of them. So as they clear that hip and thread the needle with the hip, now there's a snapshot all the way to the right or to the left. Look at the thoracic rotation you'd be getting as well, right? So there's a lot of great stuff that goes on. You start in the center, you're getting almost like a bear crawl. You start to shoot one hip out. So you're gonna get thoracic rotation on one side, shoot your hip out the other side. And sometimes there's a big difference in the range of motion that the people can control left versus right. So it's like an assessment too. So it's, it's a phenomenal for the hip. You're getting going to get some hip uh, external rotation. You're going to get some hip internal rotation, thoracic rotation, core stability, the co-contraction of the rotator cuff into the scapula stabilizers. And then once again, if you want to get someone's heart rate up, this is very <laughs> metabolically challenging. Uh, very metabolically challenging, guys, if you've not done this one. But, you know, but the one thing when you're doing this, again, think about positioning and the quality of the movement. So do definitely start someone slow because what you're going to notice, and this was a compensation that I had, I use my hands so much that my forearms tend to get very, very tight. So it limits my ability to put my hands flat and keep them flat when I start adding different hip movements. And so I know that's something that I need to work on. So you want to maintain open hands, keep them wide, make sure that they keep both of them planted. And then when they're going through and they're rotating, not this, not the, actually the, the thread leg, but the one that stays up. So the knee. So for example, when you're looking at the last picture on the right, you see his right knee should be out. Often people will keep that knee pushed in towards their thread knee because they don't want to open up the hips. This is a really good hip opener as well. So I use this a lot when we're doing again, more dynamic type movements to get them, you know, into whatever program they're going to do, but definitely one that once you start speeding it up, they understand the patterning, you know, that they could do it with the quality being right on, um, have them do this for 10, 15, 20, 30 seconds and they're gassed. So it's not always about the mountain climber and all the things that we talk about adding this in as your, as your metabolic blast, if you will, is it's fun. It's different, but it's very, very challenging. No, great, great points for sure. It's, it, and there's ways to start it, like just start with the bear crawl and maybe just have them bring their foot out to the opposite side. You don't have to come all the way underneath and sit up like that. So there's there's definitely progressions and regressions, but start with the bear crawl and move towards this. And then when we get to some other closed chain exercise examples, I really am a fan of the renegade row as long as there's good um, stabilization um, within the shoulder capsule. So you know, if somebody's really struggling on doing a row without spinning, we've talked about that before. And that's when somebody is internally rotated in the shoulders. So you know that they're, they're, they're rounded in the forward or in their shoulders. And then you have them try to row. If they haven't gotten out of that, that forward shoulder position and you have someone row, oftentimes you're going to notice that they just spin in that shoulder capsule. What we were trying to do is make sure that they get really good retraction and depression when they're rowing. So it's almost like they're sticking their chest out and really trying to get that pinch and watch that shoulder blade move. So once they get good movement and quality of movement within the shoulder complex, and then you put them prone 
They have to now fight gravity. They had to have good core stabilization. They have to maintain neutral position. So glutes are squeezed, abs are in tight, chins locked down. So they're making a, a straight angle. And just as long as they're not winging, and if you're working towards that, so you're working towards the serratus activation, you're really trying to add that plus, maintain the plus, and now row, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things that you have to think about in order to do this correctly. And, you know, I see people at the gym, they just go, they put their weights down and they're just rowing. Nothing's really working, but they're doing it. Well, you know, there's a, a difference between doing it and doing it correctly, in my opinion. And I think to execute this correctly, there are certain steps to take. Can you row with a dumbbell, like a one-arm row fixed on an actual bench? Then can you do a push-up, and then can you do a plank? And if you can do all of those successfully, then add this together because it really is kind of a total body, even though we don't really look at it as a total body without breaking it up into what needs to be firing to execute it correctly. Right. Excellent. And then from there, you can even, if done properly, you can even move that into what you see in the second picture, even with the dumbbell. Now that's a much more advanced, right? The dumbbell is going to be light. Like in a renegade row, people try to get a little bit of a heavier load, but there's nothing wrong with doing a five pound renegade row into rotation, right? Because now you have to control that with the arm that's in the air, but it just puts more demand with the hand that's stabilizing on the ground. But again, we would start with something like what you see here in the center. So she could have been in a high plank position and just rotates herself open. So you're getting that rotation through the shoulder that she has to dynamically stabilize all the way through the core and hips. And then she can come back to the high position, almost like what you see here on the far right. Or maybe you go all the way down into a push-up and then come back up into that rotation. So I've seen people in yoga do this differently and they hold these positions but the concept is you've got a sagittal plane picture in the uh, left and right with some frontal plane stability of course even when they're moving in the sagittal plane their body's going to have to fight moving in the frontal plane or even dipping into the transverse plane but then here in the middle you have a push-up with rotation or just a high plank to rotation where you're truly going into the transverse plane to stabilize in that closed chain so i use all three of these uh, pretty much in any type of upper body warm up, I'm using the left, the, the one in the center or the right, as, uh -huh. without a doubt, as a warm up. And I think, you know, it's important too, you know, with the figure on the right, you know, the shoulder taps. So it is a person that's in a high plank. Can they maintain one arm stability before you start to load it? And to your point, Marty, people do a renegade row. They think, well, I can row with heavy weight, I can do a one arm row on the bench with, you know, a 40 or 50 or whatever pound weight you're using, and I can execute that correctly. However, take the weight aside. Can you maintain, quote, the, the push-up position? And then I remove an arm without, like, with, to your point, without dipping my hips, without rotating, or without coming into to any kind of winging position within the shoulder capsule. And so as long as someone's got really core, good core stability, and they can go and just tap from side to side, or I'm a big fan of the plank walks. I mean, I've talked about that before where you start in a forearm plank. So a low, you know, a low plank, and then they come up on one hand and then to the other. That really works on the stabilizers within the shoulder, works the entire rotator cuff, as well as having to maintain good core stability. You know, I think that the, the taps are step one, maybe then adding in the plank walks after that and then going into some renegade rows. So look at this as different progressions, but each and every time you're doing this, it's a completely different demand on the body, but you just want to be smart in, in taking the right steps to get there. Yeah. So there's, again, we could have put in more, but 
every one of your clients is going to be able to find some level of this. Cause even if you're doing this off a Smith machine to start or a bench to start, you don't have to be all the way to the ground as long as it's safe and controlled. And then you're working them lower. So they have to fight gravity more, which means there's going to be more muscular contraction, more muscular demand. So it's just working them within a range that they can control. Mm -hmm. And then when so, we get into, Oh, I was going to say, we can get into the pull-ups. I mean, Marty, I know mm -hmm. this is your go-to. Um, I, you know, I am an, an like I'm anti kipper, so I am going to say that oh, because without I a doubt, want, the only reason, the only reason I feel that way is, is because when people start to do a, a pull up, they're doing everything. They're running in place. They're holding onto the bar for dear life. They're straining their neck. They're not maintaining quality of movement patterns. Yeah. And so you're on a fixed bar. You are now moving your body up in space, trying to do that. If you are new to this and you really want to do an exceptional pull up without quote cheating, then start with a super band, put a super band on the bar, you know, put your legs inside of it or your feet, depending if you want to be on your knees or if you want it to be um, even longer lever. So you're standing straight and then have that super band or super band guide you to de-weight yourself in order to get really good movement patterns and quality. And then at that point, you know, you can start to minimize the thickness of the band, which is minimizing the actual help that you're getting until you get into your body weight position and you can do those successfully. But if you try to do that and you're running in space to try to push yourself up, that's when, when injuries can start occurring, you're getting low back arch, you're starting to really strain and stress, you know, muscles that shouldn't really be your prime movers just to get yourself over a bar to do a pull up. Yeah. And again, pull up to me, isn't the most important thing because there's ways that if I can't carry my body weight, I can do pull downs. I can do other things, suspension training. So I'm more of a neutral grip pull up position person. Cause a lot of people will not have the external rotation to be there. Plus you're shortening the muscle. So it's in a weaker position. I'm not saying not to do pull-ups. I'm, I'm great at pull-ups. I can, I can rip off a pretty good amount with ideal form and technique. It's just, you know, they're demanding but I will do a neutral grip. But the key thing is it's a core stabilization exercise. Why I move, you know, up and down. That's how I'm bringing things about it. But I'll even do the isometrics where I'm up for three to five seconds with that shoulder depression and retraction. And then I lower. And then I, even if I have to jump up, I'm looking for that perfect isometric contraction. But I just wanted to put this in there that this is a closed chain exercise. A lot of people would default and think that this one's an open chain exercise because my feet or hands aren't on the ground. It's on a fixed object is the key thing. And as we move towards the right, you, you see another version of the side plank. So this time someone's doing external rotation, totally fine. And then this time someone is elevating the feet. So there's more neuromuscular demand and more sway that they have to control. All of these are great as long as they make sense for your client and they're implemented properly. And the form and technique is what it should be. Yes. And I have a client that's all about the middle picture because he is a golfer and right. he has a lot of shoulder issues. And so instead of just doing external rotation, I'm like, why not add some core work in there as well? So back to that same side plank um, that we were talking about earlier in order to get multiple muscles firing at the right time. And I did also want to just throw out there, guys, we're live today. So if you have any kind of questions about the topic that Marty and I are talking about, which is ground-based training, the differences between open um, chain and closed chain exercises, please be sure to write them in so we can get those answered. Um, so I will give you our contact at the end, but just wanted to say, if you've got questions, bring them, you know, bring them. We're ready. 
And with some of these exercises, not all, because again, I'm not a, a fan of uh, power-based pull-ups unless you're competing. Think about it. Are these stabilization exercises only? Are they strength exercise only? I'm going to say a pull-up is probably a strength-based for most people. Not many people can do a 4-2-2 tempo. So, and then, you know, some are going to only be power. But so it just depends on where it's at. Most of them are going to definitely have a great stabilization component and strength component. But you just got to think about where in the model you should put these. There will be some, like the bear crawl, could be all three. A pull-up, very, I'm not going to say impossible, but very hard to do 12 to 20 at a 4-2-2 tempo, right? So just use that as, as a guide as well to where you need to put this in the model with your tempo. Yeah. And I mean, think about this too. That's why we always say every client is different. There's always going to be those instances where somebody does need to be able to quickly excel on a bar, especially if you're working with a gymnast. However, if you've ever watched the Olympics or you're watching men, you know, do some of these bar routines, they also stop and hold these positions in the air that seems incredible on one hand and spinning and do doing all of these movements that I would never do because I would probably hurt myself. But there are times and places, and that's why when we say, you know, it's hard for us to imagine this, there might be an instance where, yes, your client needs to be able to do some of these at a faster pace. But if you can execute it very slowly, accurately teach good quality of movements as you start to increase the load or increase the speed, you know that you're only going to help your client be able to do that um, as exceptionally as possible versus like just going out doing it for the sake of saying I can do 12, 13, 20, whatever pull-ups. What's your purpose? Exactly. <laughs> What's your why? What's your why? Excellent. So a couple more here. So I like... Um, I don't know what you really want to call the one on the left. It's part of an inchworm. Sometimes what I do is I'll stay. I don't bring my feet in. I just do that. And I'm pushing into the ground to let my scapulas go further away from my shoulder, right? That depression. So then you've got also your Bulgarian split squat. Some people call it. So it's closed chain on that front leg and then a single leg Romanian deadlift. So, so much going on in all of these, the co-contractions, but you get your hand on the ground, get your foot on the ground, fix it and make everything above it move. And I know that you use all three of these, Wendy. I do. And I think it's called, is it a downward dog in yoga? Isn't that what the one is on the left? I think. Could be. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I, obviously I don't take yoga like I should. I should probably know that. But, right. but anyway, I like the inchworm because I do that as well. So. <laughs> Miserable exercise. I mean, I love it. Yes. Yes. So any tips on these ones, Wendy, before we're going to our key takeaways? No, I mean, again, it's all about, it's all about technique and especially in the split squat. I love that exercise as long as somebody has really good hip extensibility. Um, you know, it's challenging. You're working on balance. You're focusing on loading the leg. You're getting really good quad and glute activation, especially on the right leg that should be what's loaded. The other one's kind of like your kickstand, if you will. But if someone has a low back arch, they don't have good hip extensibility yet because you're working on getting that range of motion throughout the hip complex. Then if you set someone up here and you have them go that deep and they don't have that, they're going to get a big arch in their lower back. And so therefore compensations are going to occur, which again is not ideal form. So just some, that one's a very easy one to, to identify right then and there is the low too too heavy. Do you need to lighten it? Are you going down too deep? And do you need to make sure in, in my personal opinion to really get, you know, good stretching throughout the hips before you execute this one particular exercise. Yeah, and that's that's why we put everything together the way we do, right? Right through the warm up, so that way when you get here, you're ready to go. So excellent. 
So I hope everyone got some key takeaways, but let's review kind of what the premise was behind this on ground-based training is, are you familiar just simply with open chain versus closed chain? Or are you just assigning exercises based without that thought process? You know, do you use them with intent or is it by accident? So hopefully we move more towards that intent and you see the benefits of definitely getting in some closed chain exercises. And as I just said, not too long ago, follow the OPT model because some of them could go through all the different phases. Some will be in one unique phase. And that way, you know, your sets, your reps, your tempo and what you're truly trying to accomplish. So that's your guide. We always say that the model is your best friend. So use it. So Wendy, why don't we give the wonderful people your contact information? Yeah. And I just was reading some of the comments. I want to say thank you guys who joined us live. And, um, you know, we're so glad that you like our podcast and we're winking and pinky waving or whatever back at you. Um, yeah. But if you want to contact us, you can find me on Instagram at wendy.bats13, or you can always email me about a topic you want us to discuss or just anything that we can do to help guide you. And you can do that by finding me or by emailing me at wendy.bats at nasm.org. Excellent. My information right here, dr.martymiller72 for Instagram and then marty.miller at nasm.org. So Wendy, great information as always. And for all of you that joined us this week on the Master Instructor Roundtable, we can't thank you enough. And as Wendy said, we are here to take suggestions, comments, and we will continue to hopefully put out some great content that you can utilize right away. So thank you guys so much for joining. Look forward to seeing you next week.